You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Robert Houlihan. Once the rush and excitement of Christmas and New Year's wears off, and we all make our ways back to work and school, the rough weather hits. It's a month where you can expect it to be simultaneously windy, freezing cold, and raining for the most part. And the darkness of winter, although lifting after the solstice, is still with us. The dreariness means that what little daylight we have is often obscured with clouds, and it might seem like we never get beyond the very beginnings of the lightning of the day before the night comes again. People forget how far north we are. We're on just about the same latitude as Newfoundland. Just as Christmas and New Year's here is nearly magical, January is like a nationwide hangover, with everybody working towards their good intentions for the new year and the long-awaited payday at the end of the month. In January of 2005, Robert Houlihan was 11 years old and was not at all burdened by the greyness that had settled over the grown-ups around him. He had a new bike from Christmas, a BMX, and had won a medal in hurling at the very beginning of that month. He was a happy, sporty kid and was into all things hurling and horses. He was the eldest in his house with two younger siblings, Emma eight and Harry four. He was a confident and happy kid, though his parents would later say that he was afraid of the dark. His family lived in Bally Edmund, a townland just north of Middleton, County Cork. The area is bordered by a small river surrounded by trees and sits between two golf courses, all green fields and hedgerows, just beyond the busy town. At about 2pm on the 4th of January, nearly a week before all the kids would have to contemplate going back to school, Robert jumped onto his BMX. He adored this bike, and had been seen polishing up its silver paint the day before. It was perfect for the small lanes and the country terrain around his house. He also had his mobile phone in his pocket. He'd bought it after Christmas with the money he'd been given a Nokia 3200. Well, he shared it with his mam, but it was his phone really. He cycled down the driveway of his house and off he went. He'd spent that morning on his bike too. He'd made himself a ramp in the yard to do jumps off. But this time he sped off out and away from the house. At half three that afternoon, Magella, Robert's mum, called him on his mobile, but it rang out. She wanted to know what he wanted for dinner. He usually didn't stay out for much longer than an hour, but she wasn't particularly worried. He was out on his new bike, maybe he'd lost track of time and just hadn't heard the phone. She rang him six times between half three and half five, getting ever increasingly more worried. 
They usually stayed in regular contact. She liked to know where he was. She'd even left a message on the phone asking him to pick up and call her back. At 5 p.m., as evening well and truly came on and darkness fell, her worry solidified. Robert hated the dark. He never stayed out once the sun had gone down. When Mark, her husband, arrived home from work at half five, Magella told him that she was really worried about Robert and that she didn't know where he'd got to. They decided to send Emma round to the neighbours to see if Robert was at any of their houses, so off Emma went. The Houlihans thought it was possible that Robert was at their near neighbours, the O'Donoghues. They had a 20-year-old son who Robert adored and who was happy to have the younger boy around. But Wayne said that he hadn't seen Robert since before lunch. Meanwhile, Magella was ringing around everyone she could think of. It was so unlike Robert to go very far, and by this stage it was fully dark outside. If he was alright, if he had somehow lost track of time, then trying to make his way home in the cold and the dark was something she'd rather avoid, too. The next step was to get into the car and to drive to any likely spot that Robert might have gone to. They checked out the McDonald's in Middleton, the local GAA sports club, and even as far as the local leisure club, which was a sort of unlikely last-ditch effort to see if they could locate their son. But Robert wasn't in any of those places. By 7pm they'd gone to all the likely spots and rung around all his friends, even the ones that lived a good distance from them, just to be sure, and there was still no sign of Robert. The Gardie would have to be called. The immediate neighbours were out searching with the Houlihans, and they were soon joined by the Gardie who began door-to-door inquiries to try and figure out where Robert had gone once he left his drive. At 9pm, Gardie got a call from a local man, Tom Keown. He and his son had been heading home when they spotted a bike next to a ditch in the Ballyedmond area. His son said that it was a new bike, and so the two picked it up and brought it back to the house to try and figure out who it belonged to. It seemed to be in the middle of nowhere, but it was parked neatly, they said, placed next to the ditch, and surely someone would miss it. They noted that it was a one-size-fits-all bike, but the seat had been adjusted down low, so it was likely a youngster's, and it had a sticker on it from a local bike shop on Rohr. They thought they'd inquire there the next day to see if they could locate the owner, but then they heard about the missing boy. The bike was confirmed as being Robert's by their next-door neighbour Wayne, and with that the search became far more serious. Why would a young boy who loved his bike leave it behind, parked at a ditch? It was clear now that he wasn't out for a joyride or hiding out at a friend's house. The boy was missing. Maybe he was hurt somewhere, or even worse, maybe he'd been snatched. By eleven, word had spread through the area, and with Robert still out there somewhere, people gathered to search for him. Neighbours, members of his local GAA club, parents of friends. They put on heavy coats and took flashlights out and searched the ditches and little laneways of the Bally Edmund area. After searching for hours in the dark, they finally had to give in for the night, still with no sign of Robert. By the morning, Wednesday the 5th of January, 
The search had begun again in earnest, the situation becoming ever more serious as the minutes and hours passed by. News of the search stretched beyond the immediate area in Middleton, through East Cork, and by afternoon it had made the national news. By the third day of the search, the national media had descended on the small townland of Ballyedmond, and dozens of volunteers had turned up to help the Garda search. Children don't really go missing like this. They certainly don't vanish into thin air, and if they do, they don't stay that way for very long. They're found, hiding out, on an adventure, injured, and so on. The longer he was missing, the more certain people became that something bad had happened to Robert. But what that was, no one could say. So the searches nearby continued, with a headquarters set up at a nearby golf club. People began dropping off food and drinks for the searchers, and helping out in whatever way they could. The area was searched up to five miles from the Houlihan house, and then further out again, surely further than he would have managed on his own. The small rivers, which were flowing fast and strong due to the winter weather, were searched by professional water rescue teams. Ponds and slurry pits in the nearby farms were drained, and drained again, just in case searchers had missed anything the first time around. CCTV from all over Middleton was gathered and reviewed. The lives of the entire town that day could be plotted out from all the material that the guardie now had, but Robert was not on any of the tapes. He'd not gone into the town that day. Calls were put out for anyone who had been in the area, a woman walking her dog, a jogger, white vans, a red van, but none of these inquiries led to anything. The Gardaí were no closer to figuring out where Robert Houlihan had gone. Magella gave statements to the press while the searches took place. First, she worried that Robert had fallen somewhere, had been injured and was stuck out there waiting to be found. But as time went on, she began to plead for whoever had her son to return him, convinced that there was no way Robert would not have been found at that point had he had some sort of accident. By Sunday the 9th of January, the search was still ongoing, now with guardie, volunteers, the civil defence and the army called in to assist, with an assistant Garda commissioner from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation overseeing the whole operation. In the local church, a special mass of hope was held for Robert, and prayers for his safe return to home were said. By the following Tuesday, the 11th of January, when Robert had been missing a week, Gardi liaised with the media, who were still at the site, covering the search from the golf club, and arranged to have a reenactment of Robert's last known movements done. A boy about his age, height and colouring was dressed in the dark clothes he went missing in, and followed in his footsteps, down the Houlihan Drive, just as Robert had done. It must have been incredibly difficult for his mother, who was inside the house at the time, watching the scene play out. That said, the media was beginning to lose its patience with the Gardaí. Very little concrete had emerged in the week of the search, and the press were pressuring for more information, and there were whispers of criticism against the Gardaí 
for not making use of getting information to the public through the media. The next day, possibly in order to rectify that, a detailed statement was prepared to be read to the media. Camera crews and photographers were brought into the incident room to take their shots, while the journalists and reporters waited outside. But in those few brief moments that the media had access, there was a crackle on the Garda radio. Something had been found. The news travelled fast, and soon the media scrum were driving south, toward Inch Strand. That afternoon, searchers had been directed to a large ditch or gully that was near to the laneway that led down to the beach. It was an isolated spot. Even the crossroads nearby were quiet. There was thick brush and undergrowth of brambles and gorse, and the area would prove difficult to search, even without the added difficulty of the steep incline on the ditch. But just after two, one of the volunteer searchers was combing through the brambles with a stick when he saw a dark runner or sports shoe. The alarm was raised and from the description of the clothing that they had been given, there was tentative confirmation that the small body was that of the 11-year-old missing boy. After determining that this was likely, all the searchers backed off, and Gardy sealed off the area to preserve the scene. They even closed many of the small roads around the area, and set up a cordon for the media to await news nearby. A doctor was called to pronounce the death, and a priest came to administer last rites, while the Gardaí stood by, awaiting the arrival of the NBCI and Dr. Mary Cassidy to carry out the examinations of the scene. The police again went door to door and asked people who had been in the area to report anything that had struck them as suspicious. From this they learned that vans, white and red again, this time with foreign registration plates, had been sighted in the area driving erratically. There was a caravan that had been parked in the area that was full of rubbish and board games, and it had looked suspicious. There had been a bonfire lit nearby at some point recently. Though the beach was relatively isolated and not a well-known bathing area, it was well-travelled by walkers, especially those out with their dogs, and so people had been in the area, despite the cold winter weather. Rumours flew around the press as the examinations were awaited. One said that there had been plastic bags found partially wrapped around the body, and another said that there had been the remains of a small fire near to the body. By 12 noon the next day, the Technical Bureau had completed their work, which allowed Dr Cassidy to make her way to the body. She examined the scene for about an hour before a hearse was driven to the ditch and Robert Houlihan's body was removed in a coffin to Cork University Hospital for the post-mortem examination. That evening, Gardy held a press conference in a local hotel and answered questions for the press. They confirmed that they were in the process of eliminating 36 people who were known sex offenders. This was shocking for the local community. Many of these offenders were not on the sex offender registry, having committed their crimes before it came into existence. It seemed like a huge number of potentially dangerous people in the otherwise quiet and safe area of rural East Cork. 
The Guardi also confirmed that they had reached out to police authorities in Britain and Belgium. Before Robert's body had been found, there were rumours that he had been snatched and taken out of the country, which now everyone knew was not the case. But given the sightings of foreign registered cars in and around the scene, Gardi were not able to rule out that perhaps a tourist or visitor to the area had committed a crime of opportunity and then left the country. They said that they would contact police services overseas as needed. Closing out the conference, the Gardi appealed for Robert's killer to come forward, saying that often people feel better when they had confessed and knew that they no longer would be able to hurt anyone else. But by the next day, the Garda investigation had become a lot more focused, and lines of inquiry into those 36 locals, or a possibly foreign visitor, were all but dropped. The post-mortem examination had been completed, and it had revealed more about the crime and the perpetrator. Robert had to be formally identified by his dental records, given the length of time he had been left outside, and also because there had been animal activity on his remains as well. But from the examination, it was clear that there had been no sexual assault. Robert had been asphyxiated, and there was absolutely no sign that a ligature had been used. Mary Cassidy concluded that he had died while in a headlock, and that the suspect that the Gardaí were looking for would have good upper body strength. Next to Robert's body at the scene had been his mobile phone, the contents of which was being gone over, and a black plastic bag. Gardaí had managed to lift prints from this. It was clear that the roadside near Inch Beach was not where Robert had been killed. Police thought he had been driven to the area after his death, wrapped clumsily in the plastic and thrown into the ditch. So they began searching the roadways between Inch and Robert's home in Ballyedmond, looking for any evidence that would tie back to whoever had killed Robert. Meanwhile, they also sought so-called exclusionary fingerprints, apparently to compare to those that had been found on the black bag. Robert's funeral was held on Saturday the 15th of July, in the Holy Rosary Church in Middleton. His body had been brought back to lie in repose in his home for a week before that, but he had been kept in a sealed coffin, on the advice of Gardy. The damage to him had been too much to open the casket. That day, the town closed down. Shops and pubs closed one by one, some hanging a black ribbon on their doors before locking up and people made their way to the church. Near to 4,000 people attended there, with only 2,000 actually making it inside. The official army representative of the Taoiseach and the president were in attendance, and so was every local politician. His schoolmates and friends from the GAA club were there. Everyone really was there for the mass. His parents sat in grief and shock as the local bishop spoke. He again made a plea for Robert's killer to come forward, to take responsibility for his actions, and to seek forgiveness from God. Sean Og O'Halpine, a hero of Robert's and a national star hurler, said the prayers of the faithful. The whole community mourned. Robert's neighbour, Wayne, who was described as the big brother Robert never had, 
said that he felt responsible. He told his girlfriend that if he'd just taken Robert into town, like he had asked earlier in the day, that none of this would have happened. In fact, Wayne had been asked to say the prayers of the faithful until Sean Oak had stepped in. At half eleven the next day, Gardy got a phone call. It was from a family member of one of the Houlihan's neighbours. They asked for Gardy to call out to the house. Someone wanted to talk to them in relation to the Robert Houlihan case. A Garda arrived at the O'Donoghue house shortly after, and a voluntary interview took place. That evening, close to nine o'clock, Gardy brought Wayne O'Donoghue by car to the Garda station in Middleton to be held under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and to await a hearing in a special sitting of the district court. No real details of the arrest had been given to the press, but by that stage they knew that Gardy had someone in custody and that he was a 20-year-old neighbour and had known Robert and, most shockingly, had also participated in the search after Robert's disappearance. They also found out that a house near to the Houlihans had been cordoned off and was undergoing a forensic examination. The next day, just after 8pm, Wayne O'Donoghue appeared in the courthouse in Middleton with his solicitor, Frank Buttermer. Evidence was given of his arrest for the unlawful killing of Robert Houlihan. He was charged and remanded in custody. No application for bail was made at that time, though his lawyer requested that he be sent to Cork Prison instead of St. Patrick's Institution for young offenders to allow him to stay closer to home. That was granted, but in the end didn't work out. The news of Robert Holohan's killing had been huge, and the prison population were outraged by it. O'Donoghue was moved to the Midlands prison in Port Leash for his own safety. Locals were horrified to hear that such a young man, a friend and neighbour, was the one charged with Robert's death, and he had even had the audacity to go out searching alongside other volunteers. It seemed so unbelievable. He was from a good family. He was an engineering student. He seemed so normal. What had happened? On Tuesday, the 29th of November, 2005, the trial of Wayne O'Donoghue for the murder of Robert Holohan opened in Cork City, in the newly refurbished courthouse on Washington Street. A jury was selected, seven women and five men, and the courtroom was predictably packed with press and members of the public who wanted to find out exactly what had happened to Robert Holohan. When the trial began, Wayne O'Donoghue sat in the dock wearing a sensible grey suit, but looking undoubtedly changed by his prison experience thus far. He was drained-looking. The blonde tips of his hair had grown out and been cut away by this point, and he'd put on weight, looking bloated and worried now. When the charge of murder was put to him, he spoke up, saying, Not guilty to murder, but guilty to manslaughter. He had taken some sort of responsibility for the death of his neighbour, but the state was adamant in pursuing the murder charge against him, and so the trial would carry on. Senior counsel for the state, Shane Murphy, rose first and addressed Mr Justice Paul Carney and the jury outlining the case against O'Donoghue. 
he said that they would show that Wayne had intended on killing Robert, that the two had gotten into a disagreement and Wayne had strangled Robert, dumped his body, attempted to destroy evidence by burning it, and then had callously stood by and even pretended to help look for Robert's body. He had done nothing to indicate to authorities where Robert might be found, even anonymously, and had only cracked under pressure in the aftermath of the discovery of the body and the funeral. The state's case relied on the statement that Wayne had made on the Sunday after Robert's funeral, and fingerprints found on the black plastic bag that matched him. Wayne ought to have known that his actions, being so much bigger and stronger than his young friend, would have resulted in serious harm or in Robert's death. After the opening statements, Tugardi gave evidence of maps and photographs of the areas involved for the benefit of the jury, and then the court adjourned for the day. Day two of the trial was an emotional one. After some brief legal wrangling about media coverage of the case, where Justice Carney subtly let the press know he was paying attention to what was being broadcast and printed about the case, he told the defence team that he was unlikely to declare a mistrial over a few minor inaccuracies in the papers. Then Magella Holohan took the stand. She told the court about Robert. He was a lovely, normal kid, into the outdoors and sports. He had mild ADHD and took a low dose of Ritalin when he was in school, but he didn't take it when he was on his holidays. Instead, he was allowed to play his sports and be outside to use up the extra energy and allow him to focus on things he really enjoyed. She told the jury about how that day he'd been all about his bike. His granddad had called to the house at lunchtime and offered to take Robert out to see the horses, but Robert had been riding the day before. Magella had seen him go up and down on the drive and then take off speeding as fast as he could down the road. She said, She'd noted he had his coat on, so she wasn't worried. He'd be warm. Then she spoke about how the worry had begun setting in. She said that she had called Wayne at about half four to see if Robert was with him when he wasn't answering the phone and it was getting dark, but Wayne said he hadn't seen Robert since about lunch. Magella said Wayne sounded normal. Mark Holohan was up next and recounted the search that had begun when he got home from work, the ring round to friends and the driving to estates. Wayne and his brother had offered to help out and went out looking for Robert in places they knew he liked to go. When he was cross-examined, when he was cross-examined by the senior counsel for the defence, Blaise O'Carroll, Mark said that yes, Robert was an energy-filled child and that he could be demanding especially Mark felt when he got home from work and would be insistent that the two of them would go out to kick a ball or play hurling in the garden. Sometimes when he was tired and if Robert became defiant, he'd give the boy a quick slap across the back of his legs to drive the point home. Mark said that now, though, he thought it had mainly been from him being tired and he felt guilty about the discipline now. After that, William Murray, Magella's father, confirmed that he had been at the Houlihan house at lunchtime, and then a number of witnesses gave evidence about the silver bike that had been left parked next to a ditch that afternoon and evening. It was first spotted at about 5pm, but definitely hadn't been there at 3pm, 
and later that evening was picked up by the Kyons. The third day of the trial saw a number of witnesses take to the stand to testify to Wayne O'Donoghue's demeanour and behaviour the day Robert went missing and during the search. A number of friends of the O'Donoghue's said that he'd rung them up and told them that Robert was missing, that he seemed worried but normal. His behaviour to them was appropriate for someone whose friend couldn't be found. Gardee that interacted with Wayne during the search said that he had become aggressive with them on occasion. They said that if they broke to make plans, or said that the weather or terrain was too much for volunteers to handle, he would give out to them, saying that they were wasting time and losing light. Both he and his brother Timmy O'Donoghue had gotten annoyed with the Gardee. A few also noted that Wayne seemed to have an interest in the maps of the areas that they were using to coordinate the search. He seemed overly interested in knowing what areas were being searched and where they were moving groups to next. People who searched with Wayne said that his behaviour was odd at times too. One man said that after Wayne had explained that he felt guilty, as he was the last to see Robert before he disappeared, and that he told Robert he wouldn't take him into Middleton to get chips, he said to the young man, so you were the last to see him, and then asked him directly, well, did you kill him? The volunteer said that Wayne had gotten quiet after that and said nothing more to him. A girl who was searching with Wayne around the time that Robert was found recalled an awkward silence that the two shared when the news came through that Robert's body had been found. It seemed a strange juxtaposition, the people that knew Wayne saying that he was behaving normally, and yet those out searching with him saying that he had made them uncomfortable or had seemed somehow off. Then the two volunteer searchers told of finding Robert's body in the bracken and gorse along the road down to Inch Strand. Gardy witnesses again took the stand on the third day of the trial this time to recount the events of Sunday the 16th and how they came to sit in the O'Donoghue living room, taking a statement from Wayne. They said that that morning Wayne had gotten up and had gone out to buy the Sunday newspapers. They were full of coverage of Robert's funeral the day before and included again the pleas that the local bishop had made for the killer to come forward. Wayne could no longer take the guilt of it all, and knew that the guardee had fingerprints, and so he went home and told his father that he was sorry that what had happened to Robert was an accident. His father began crying, and then his mother came in to find out what the matter was. The three went to the garden shed to discuss things away from Wayne's brothers so that they didn't overhear or see that they were upset. Wayne had told his parents everything, and his father said that he would have to call the guardee. They also called the family solicitor, who gave them Frank Buttermer's number. While Ray O'Donoghue did this, Wayne and his mother stayed in the shed, as at the time his parents feared that Wayne may try and hurt himself. The guardee came and sat down with Wayne and his lawyer, who had also come, and Wayne made a statement. It took seven hours, and he refused breaks during this time. Gardie also told the court about previous statements Wayne had made to them, that he had heard screams from the Houlihan house before, that Magella couldn't handle Robert, and that Robert had called her a bitch and a slut in the past. 
His previous statement said that Robert had called to his house and asked for a lift into town to McDonald's to get a milkshake. When Wayne refused, he said Robert had sworn at him and Wayne had told him to fuck off. But in this seven-hour statement, Wayne instead outlined how Robert had called to the house that much was true. The boy had wanted him to bring him into Middleton, but Wayne had said he'd been into town a few times already that day, and the traffic was bad. The two slagged each other, and then Robert left the house. In his statement to the Gardaí, Wayne had said, quote, He, Robert, then picked up a bunch of pebbles, and again threw them at the rear area of my car. I walked over to him, and gave him a little nudge, and told him to fuck off. I turned around to walk back towards the front door, and I felt more pebbles hit the back of my head, and more off the car. I wasn't over-happy with him with the pebbles hitting my car. I turned back round. Robert was standing beside his bicycle. I walked over to him, and I put my right arm round his neck. I jerked him away from the bike towards the rear right-hand side of the car. I released the grip with my right hand, and I was still holding him with my left hand by the scruff of the neck. Nothing was said between us at this stage. I then moved my left hand up to his Adam's apple. He was against the rear right-hand side of my car. I said, will you stop at the fucking stones? I can't describe how tight I held him. I don't know how long I held him, but it seemed very short. I did not intend to cause him any harm or injury. When I removed my left hand from his throat, he just fell to the ground. I did not realize at that time he had been hurt. I called, Rob. He slumped down at my feet. End quote. Then Wayne had brought him inside into the bathroom, trying to revive him by splashing water on his face, but of course Robert didn't stir. When Wayne realized he was dead, he wiped off Robert's face with toilet paper and flushed it, and he said he stood in front of the bathroom mirror with a kitchen knife, intending to cut his own throat, but he couldn't, and so he wrapped Robert's body in plastic and dumped him in the gully near to Inch Strand. He'd intended on hanging himself in the shed or the back garden, but by then people were looking for Robert, and he kind of got swept up in the search. That night he planned on hanging himself from a tree in the back garden, but again he didn't. And then as the days went on, it got harder and harder, he said. Quote, the hole got bigger and bigger, end quote and he found he just couldn't confess what he had done. On Friday the 2nd of December, Rebecca Dennehy, Wayne's girlfriend, filled in the gaps as to what Wayne had been up to the day Robert was killed. She lived only a few minutes from the O'Donoghues, and the two had spoken on the phone at lunchtime that day, with Wayne turning up shortly after. He began helping her put together a study timetable. She was to sit her leaving certificate that year, and they went through her CAO, or college application form. Wayne had gotten a call from his brother, Timmy, to drive back into Cork to pick up an exercise bike he'd just bought, and so Wayne left. The next Rebecca heard from him was in a text at about four. He said he was doing college stuff, but would be by later. And he was. 
They watched some TV and then went and walked the O'Donoghue's dog together. They then played a game on his Xbox in his room and drove into Middleton to return a movie to Extravision DVD rentals. Wayne dropped Rebecca home and said he had more college things to do. At about half eight, he rang her and said that Robert was missing and that they were out searching for him. Up until this point, Rebecca recalled that Wayne had seemed normal to her. He wasn't acting strange. In that call, he said to her that he felt responsible, that if he just brought Robert into Middleton to get the milkshake, then this would never have happened. Over the next few days, as the search went on, Rebecca said that Wayne was much quieter, not his usual self, but she put it down to the fact that his friend was missing. She described the relationship between Wayne and Robert as good. They did typical boy stuff together, and they were both very fond of one another. She said she'd never seen Wayne get annoyed at Robert, nor had she heard him speak badly of him. She was shocked when Wayne had called to her house on Sunday the 16th to admit to her what he had done. From the witness box, she said she couldn't believe it, that what had happened was so out of character, and that, despite everything, she still loved Wayne. After that, Moragardi took to the stand to describe the scene that they had found at Inch Strand. The ditch that Robert had been found in was nearly 40 feet deep, and covered in thorny bramble and gorse. To get to the body, the Gardi had to be lowered in a cherry picker, and they'd rigged up some scaffolding ladders to the side to try and get access. On the twigs and branches around Robert's body, there was a tarry residue, presumably left over from the burning of the black sacks, and there was scorch marks on Robert's clothing. His t-shirt and trousers were burnt a bit at the seams. Everything had been collected carefully, including a plastic bag. The court heard that this bag had turned up some fingerprints, which, when compared to a number of exclusionary prints taken during the investigation, matched to prints supplied by Wayne O'Donoghue. The next day, the jury turned their attention to the newly installed large screens, where they would be shown a number of videos. The first was of Wayne in the Middleton Garda station, immediately after his seven-hour confession. In this tape, the Gardaí were simply reading his statement over to him. He described his day and how the killing had happened, and then how he'd bundled Robert's body into the boot of his punto and put the bike in the back. He said he hadn't driven far when he put the bike on the road, and that it must have been just after four o'clock. He then drove around aimlessly for a while, not knowing where to go. At one point, he'd stopped at a petrol station and bought a bottle of Lucasade for himself. Then he made his way towards the coast, intending to leave Robert on the strand at Inch, but there were cars parked there, and in a panic, he'd thrown him into the ditch before returning home and acting as normally as he could. He had said in the statement that this was difficult for him. He was distressed at what had happened. Later that night, feeling guilty at the manner in which he'd thrown Robert's body into the gully, he returned, thinking that he'd get the body onto the beach. But it wasn't possible. He'd also brought a can of petrol with him, and it was with this that he set the plastic bags alight. Before the recording finished, Wayne said, quote, I am deeply sorry for what happened. 
Robert was a good friend and like a brother to me. If I could swap roles, I would. I did not intend to harm him. What happened was a fluke. It was an accident. I am sorry I did not come forward earlier to explain what happened. End quote. The second tape that the jury was shown was different. The guardie had questioned Wayne after the statement had been read over to him, trying to get to the bottom of what happened, and they were less sympathetic. They put it to Wayne that his earlier statements had been quote-unquote horseshit. They honed in on exactly what Wayne had done to Robert, asking what he thought would happen when Wayne put the young man into a headlock before shoving him against the car and holding him by the neck. All Wayne could say was that he hadn't intended to hurt him. Yes, he'd been angry and frustrated because Robert wouldn't leave and he'd been flicking stones at the car, but Wayne insisted that he hadn't snapped or lost it. He was annoyed, that's all, and hadn't had any intent to harm Robert. They asked why he hadn't called 999 after he realised Robert was hurt. Why had he moved the boy into the house? Wayne admitted that he probably moved Robert to stop people driving by and seeing what had happened, but that he was in a complete panic and it never crossed his mind to raise the alarm, only first to kill himself and then to hide what he had done. He said he was a coward for not being able to go through with his suicide plans. On the tape, he insisted that he had not covered Robert's mouth with his hand to stop him from yelling, and he couldn't remember how long he had held Robert in a headlock or by the neck. He hadn't any plan when he started driving with Robert's body in the car, and he said that when he returned to the body in an attempt to move it onto the beach, all he could see were the black bags. He'd burnt them at that point because he wasn't able to pull them away, and they were all he could see. He'd not been able to see if Robert's body had slipped further down the incline, and burning the bags had been an attempt to see what had happened. Professor Mary Cassidy then gave evidence regarding her examination of the dump site, as well as of the post-mortem. She said that Robert's body had been found basically caught up in the bushes on a steep incline. His head was closer to the ground and his feet had been pointed up, towards the top of the bank. There had been some animal predation which made visual identification impossible, so his identity had been confirmed by dental records, though there had never been any question that this was in fact the body of Robert Holohan. At the post-mortem examination, she noted his clothing, black trousers and orange top. There were some scorch marks and melting of the fabric, but no fire damage to Robert's body. He had petechial hemorrhaging behind his ears, on his scalp, and in his mouth. These are the kind of pinprick red marks left by burst blood vessels, and his brain was swollen, indicating that he had died of asphyxia. But there were no marks left on his neck to indicate that a cord or anything else had been used. The chain that was around his neck had left a mark, though, and there were marks on his ribs indicating that he may have been held tightly around the front. Altogether, she thought it was likely he died in a headlock. The examination of his mouth revealed that it was possible he'd gotten a slap to the face or that someone had held their hand across his mouth, and there were deep bruises to his shoulder, back and buttocks, indicating he may have been pushed forcefully against a solid object. 
Professor Cassidy couldn't say for certain how long he would have had to have been held around the neck to cause death, but told the court it was generally accepted that 15 to 30 seconds was a minimum. Factors like whether there was a struggle or a fight which would increase oxygen needs and could speed up the amount of time required might have an impact. The next day saw the cross-examination of Professor Cassidy by Blaise O'Carroll. This focused primarily on a report that the defence had had from one of Northern Ireland's state pathologists, Dr Jack Crane. In this, he posited that the cause of Robert's death could have been due to interference with the vagal nerve. If you remember back to episode 14 and the murder of Hazel Mullen in the 50s, this was what was argued on behalf of Shan Mohangi too. Basically, this argument goes that, with very little compression to the neck, in rare cases, it can pinch the vagus nerve, which runs down to the heart, causing an immediate cardiac arrest. Dr. Crane thought that this was at play here because there were no signs of a violent struggle. He also said he didn't think that there was any trauma to Robert's mouth and disregarded that he might have been slapped or had a hand held over his mouth at some point. He also said that the damage to Robert's back was quote-unquote trivial. Professor Cassidy agreed that what she had outlined the day before broadly supported what Wayne O'Donoghue had said had happened, but said that there was bruising to Robert's mouth which must have been caused by some sort of trauma and that there were those petechial hemorrhages on his head. She disagreed that vagal inhibition was the cause of death. Simply, she disagreed with Dr. Crane. Force had been used here, she said. Robert Holohan had died from asphyxia due to neck compression. The state's case concluded with evidence from an engineer for the mobile phone provider O2. He explained to the jury about how a mobile will register if it's been moved from the coverage of one cell area to another. Gardy had contacted O2 when Robert disappeared, hoping that his brand new phone would be able to give any indication of its location, despite the fact that it had been inactive and no one was answering calls. On the 12th of January, engineers in the company noticed that Robert's phone had moved sometime between 4 and 5pm on the day he went missing and unusually was then being covered by two masts. This was due to the fact that coverage in that rural area was not strong, and these two cell sites allowed the engineers to narrow down the area that the phone might have ended up in. They called Gardy back and told them to look for the phone somewhere between Agada and Inch, and that day the Gardy directed searches to occur in those areas. That's how Robert had been found. The defence's first witness was Professor Crane, who had flown down from Northern Ireland to give evidence. He described the anatomy of the neck to the jury, the cartoid artery and the vagus nerve, and said that headlocks were extremely dangerous. He told them that they had once been used in the US by police forces to subdue suspects, but they were no longer allowed because of the amount of accidental deaths they had caused. In relation to the petechial hemorrhaging, he said that it was very understated in Robert's case and, taken with his lack of defensive wounds, indicated that there had been no struggle. He said that the bruises elsewhere to Robert's body were not indicative of anything more than minor injuries, and basically that kids bruise easily. 
he had not examined Robert's body, but based his findings on his review of Professor Cassidy's report and pictures. Professor Crane agreed broadly with what Dr. Cassidy had observed, but thought that compression of the cartoid artery or vagal stimulation was a more likely cause of death in Robert's case. The second and final witness for the defence was an employee from the Extravision movie rental shop in Middleton who told the court that she had sold Robert his mobile phone on the 28th of December at 11.15am. Robert had been in the shop with another young person, a girl, and the phone had come with a free DVD. She remembered him because she'd spoken with one of Robert's parents because the DVD that Robert had wanted was rated 15 and she wanted to check with his parents before giving it to him, to make sure it was all right with them. The prosecution and defence both gave their closing speeches, with Shane Murphy drawing the jury's attention to the findings of Dr. Cassidy, and that Wayne had done everything he could to cover up his involvement in the crime. He'd lied to the police, done his best to hide his emotions, and remained calm enough to cruelly dispose of his friend's body. Mr. O'Carroll, for the defence, however, pointed to Dr. Crane's assessment that this was a tragic accident, that Mary Cassidy had not been able to rule that out as a possibility, and it made no sense that Wayne would try and kill a boy he'd been friends with. His bringing him into town for sweets and milkshakes, playing with him and building him a treehouse did not paint a picture of someone who would go on to brutally attack and kill the boy. On the 14th of December, Mr. Justice Paul Carney delivered his summing up and instructions to the jury. He went through each of the key facts and the legal definitions that the jury must work with and sent them off to begin deliberations at 12 noon. Shortly after, however, they were called back. The defence had asked that the judge give more emphasis to the fact that where there are two interpretations of an event, if there was any doubt as to which were in fact the case, that this doubt must be allocated in the defendant's favour. The jury were sent out again. They were called back again at 4pm to check their progress, but the foreperson responded that they had not yet reached a verdict. Justice Carney said that he was satisfied that he had given them plenty of time to deliberate and come to a decision, so he would now accept a majority verdict of 10 to 2. Twenty minutes later, they returned. They found Wayne O'Donoghue not guilty of murder. Wayne wept. His parents wept. Robert's parents, Magella and Mark, wept. Rebecca Dennehy wept. The courtroom was filled with quiet weeping and reporters deciding how best to get their copy in at that point. But Wayne had pled guilty to manslaughter at the beginning of the trial, so he was remanded in further custody to await sentencing in January. The Hulahans left the courtroom quietly by a side door, and O'Donoghue's solicitor, Frank Buttermer, made a statement on behalf of Wayne and his family on the courthouse steps. Their thoughts were with the Hulahans, and they thanked everyone who had helped them in the very difficult year before. They were pleased with the verdict, but emphasised what a tragedy had occurred, and that what they had been through paled in comparison to what the Holohans had endured. On the 4th of January 2006, the Holohan family paid a private visit to Robert's grave to mark the one-year anniversary of his death. 
they had arranged a remembrance mass to be said for him the following Sunday at the Holy Rosary Church, which would see hundreds of people attend, and be covered by television news, but that day they took for themselves to remember Robert. However, the community remembered alongside them. People attended the daily masses held that Wednesday in their droves, many of them walking out to Robert's grave next to the church and leaving flowers, cards and toys at the graveside. People visited Inch Strand, too, where a small wooden cross had been erected. The brass plate had Robert's name on it, and again that day flowers and toys and stuffed animals were left by members of the community in East Cork in remembrance of the lost boy. On Tuesday the 24th of January, Wayne O'Donoghue's sentencing hearing was held in Ennis. There is a lot for a judge to consider when deciding an appropriate sentence, especially in a manslaughter case in Ireland where the sentences vary dramatically. Theoretically, an appropriate sentence could see no prison term served, or could be in the range of 10 years plus, depending on the evidence offered at trial, the accused's cooperation with authorities, probation and medical reports about the accused, and so on. Victim impact statements were introduced to Ireland in 1993, and judges must also take those into account when deciding a sentence. All of this must be balanced by the trial judge. And so, that day, the sentencing hearing started off with a victim impact statement, read by Magella Holohan. It was emotional, as she described her son's personality, how he loved the outdoors and how he was a beautiful child and had brought so much joy to their family. She described the difficulties he had through his ADHD and also dyslexia and said that with his treatment he was doing so well, despite everything he kept up with his class and enjoyed school. She described how awful the pain of him being missing was and then knowing that Wayne had done it. She'd spoken to him throughout the search and thanked him for helping, and it was such a huge betrayal for their family. She had 11 pages of a handwritten note, and made her way methodically through them, pausing when she could no longer hold back the tears. When she reached her final page, though, the tears turned to anger. She looked out across the courtroom and took a deep breath before saying, quote, our doctors told us to try and get on with our lives, but how can we, knowing there was semen found on my son's body? Forensic examination could not find any stone marks on the car. If this was an accident, why didn't Wayne call? Why were there no fingerprints found on Robert's phone, not even his own? Who wiped it clean and deleted images on it? Why did my little boy ring 999 that morning as the phone records show he did? Why was Robert in Wayne's bedroom at 7.30 in the morning when he was supposed to be on a sleepover? End quote. Then she was done. She left the stand amid objections from Wayne's defense counsel, Blaise O'Carroll. The last portion of her victim impact statement had not been part of the documents submitted to the court with the other reports and letters. She had blindsided them all with these questions and the implications of the accusations in them. A recess was asked for and granted. When the court resumed, O'Carroll objected that they had not been given any notice of the statement and said that their client's name had been blackened. He said that due to the statements he was no longer prepared to call any further witnesses or offer any evidence in sentencing. Wayne O'Donoghue had planned himself to make a statement. 
Now, that was not going to happen. Mr. Justice Carney assured the defense team that he would make his judgment based solely on the evidence before him and nothing else. He spoke to the Houlihans then, saying that they were likely about to be disappointed, but that his sentence was not a reflection of the value of their son's life, nor was it about retribution. He had come to a fair sentence, given the facts and the circumstances, evidence provided by two state pathologists, the defendant's prior good character, the fact he was unlikely to reoffend. Justice Carney also had to bear in mind the Court of Appeal decisions to try his best to ensure that his ruling would not be overturned. He sentenced Wayne O'Donoghue to four years in prison, to take into account time served. The relatively short sentence surely would have garnered a news headline, but the contents of the victim impact statement sent the media who were in attendance into a flurry. They had all been awaiting a statement by the Hulahans who had said that they would have no comment until the sentencing was over, but they left court again by a back door. Magella did speak briefly to the reporters as she passed, simply thanking people yet again who had helped in any way. Frank Buttermer appeared on the court steps to make a statement on behalf of Wayne O'Donoghue. He said that his client was happy with the sentencing, that he thought it was fair and had no intention of appealing. He then addressed the reporter's main concerns. He told them that all pertinent evidence relating to Robert's death had been presented by the state at the time of trial. There, all available evidence had been presented, and the jury and judge's decision had been made on the basis of that evidence. Wayne strongly denied that there was any impropriety in the friendship that he and Robert had, and that this had all been a tragic accident. But the sensational statements in conjunction with the four-year sentence resulted in a nation preoccupied by the case for over a week. Sentencing was the subject of a debate on the nation's most-watched TV programs, The Late Late Show with Pat Kenny. Polls taken by the TV stations showed that over 70% of respondents thought that Wayne's sentence was too light, and people wondered at the nature of the relationship between him and the much younger Robert. Frank Buttimer agreed to a number of on-air interviews where he addressed the issues that had been raised by Magella. The most pressing claim had been that semen was found on Robert's hand. He explained that during the post-mortem examination a number of swabs were collected, and one of them, from Robert's hand, had turned up minuscule amounts of semen. Initial testing carried out in the States seemed to indicate that it had belonged to Wayne. However, there was also semen found on a mat in the O'Donoghue's bathroom, and it was thought likely that this might explain it. The defence also had the small sample tested, and those results said that Wayne O'Donoghue was not a match to the DNA there. All of this information had made its way into the investigation files as things developed, and initially the prosecution had included it in the book of evidence. They were required to compile and present this to the defence 42 days after charges were laid, and as such, investigations weren't always complete. The state had followed through on the investigation of the genetic material, and decided in the end that it was of no evidential value, and therefore would not be used in trial. They had never even attempted to have it as part of their case. 
According to Buttermer, the DNA stuff had been a possibility that was looked into, but just hadn't panned out and was dropped by the state. In relation to the questions that Magella Holohan had about the mobile phone and Robert being in the O'Donoghue house early in the morning, he explained this away, saying firstly that Robert was in and out of the O'Donoghue house whenever he liked. He'd wander in and out as he pleased. Robert had made the 999 calls soon after getting the phone, and it was likely the boy just messing about, making a call that was free on the mobile because he could and that the time that Robert had been alleged to have been in Wayne's room by Magello with the mobile was actually a few hours before Robert had even bought the phone. Magella placing Robert in Wayne's house in the morning was drawn from the fact that there was a single image left on the camera phone, a picture of a poster in Wayne's room. It was dated the 28th of December at 7am but it would have been impossible for this photo to have been taken, given Robert had not bought the phone until four hours later that day. Wayne's legal team, in response to Magella's question, thought that a reasonable suggestion was that the phone's date and time settings had been incorrect. Perhaps the photo was actually taken at 7pm. The 999 calls had lasted but seconds and appeared to have been hang-ups as soon as the operator came on the line and the idea that Robert and Wayne had been talking at 6am by either's mobile phone call logs. Mr. Buttermer, Wayne, and the O'Donoghue family were dismayed at the implications about Wayne's character that had been drawn from this incomplete information. There was nothing to any of this. But solicitors for the Holohan family went on to make their own statement, Ernest Catillion stated on their behalf that Wayne's legal team had opted not to cross-examine Magella Holohan, as they were entitled to do at the sentencing hearing. The information she had stated within her victim impact statement was all contained in the investigation file. She was making none of it up, and the fact that the O'Donoghues, through their representatives, were now challenging what she had said had upset her greatly. The questions she had asked were valid, based on facts from the file. Magella Holohan should not have to censor herself, and she deserved answers, he said. By the end of the week, Magella had sent a letter to the Director of Public Prosecutions, requesting that the case be sent to the Court of Appeals. That Sunday, the papers were full of analysis of the case, ranging from lurid headlines of the tabloids, along with claims that there had in fact been two DNA samples found at the scene at Inch, which Gardy vehemently denied, and there were more thoughtful pieces that relied on the assessment of criminal profilers and the like. There was also a letter from Ray and Therese O'Donoghue decrying how the media had spun the coverage of the trial, insisting that Robert and Wayne's relationship had been a simple friendship, and that the DNA sample was not identified. If it had been, they said, that would have made it to trial. Again, they sent sympathies to the Houlihan family, saying that they were in their prayers daily. On the 20th of February, mere hours before a 28-day deadline passed, the state filed papers to appeal Wayne O'Donoghue's sentence. They said it had been unduly lenient, saying that Justice Carney had failed to take into account the age difference between the two, that he failed to have regards to the evidence of Robert's injuries, that undue weight had been given to the guilty plea, and that he had not given enough weight to O'Donoghue's covering up of the killing and the efforts made to conceal Robert's body. 
Wayne O'Donoghue and his legal team were initially surprised by the appeal. Not only was the four-year sentence pretty much in line with earlier decisions of the Court of Criminal Appeals, the late hour of the appeal had caught them off guard. The next day, it was confirmed that he would contest the appeal and seek to serve out his original sentence of four years. On the 30th of April, the Sunday Tribune ran an interview with Wayne from prison. In it, he again sent his sympathies to the Hulahans, but insisted that the whole thing had been an accident, and he was incredibly upset at being called a paedophile in the newspapers, as he said it. He went into detail about some of the testing that had been done on the semen sample, and the forensic report that had been compiled in a lab in Cambridge, UK, for the defence. In it, it was strongly suspected that the sample had been a sort of contact transfer onto Robert's hand when he'd been lying in the bathroom. On top of that, the sample had been tested against the other three male occupants of the O'Donoghue household, and it was concluded that they were actually a match to this sample. All of this led to the DNA evidence's exclusion from the state's case. On the 12th of September 2006, a coroner's inquiry into the death of Robert Hullohan was opened, despite the fact that the criminal case had not yet been completed, awaiting the results of the DPP appeal of his sentencing. The coroner's court is concerned solely with the cause and manner of death for the purposes of providing an accurate death certificate. The Hulahans attended the hearing in Middleton Courthouse and made the unusual decision to question the witnesses themselves. Mark Hulahan began his questioning by asking a Garda witness whether he thought there might be a sexual motive to the crime. The coroner at this point intervened, saying that the purpose of the inquest was simply to establish the cause of death. Professor Mary Cassidy was present to give evidence of the post-mortem findings. She was questioned by Magella, who put a total of 19 questions to her, trying to establish an alternate narrative to what had happened to her son and what had been presented at trial. They had had the post-mortem examined by forensic and medical experts and set out their scenario based on this, that it was possible Robert had been grabbed by the arm, thrown to the ground, and had been straddled before being strangled. Professor Cassidy said that she couldn't say that that didn't happen based on the evidence of the post-mortem. Magella then asked her outright, had Robert suffered? And Dr. Cassidy said it was unlikely Robert would have been in any pain due to the rapid onset of unconsciousness. The inquest was adjourned by application of the Gardee to resume after the appeal was heard. On the 18th of October 2006, the judgment of the panel of the Criminal Court of Appeal was issued. There was a lengthy decision published, which went through item by item in the state's application. In each case, they found that Justice Carney had had good reasoning and had allotted the correct importance to both aggravating and mitigating factors given the evidence presented at trial. They also addressed the role of victim impact statements, saying that allowing the relative of a deceased victim was a kind of accepted policy rather than a legislatively sanctioned action in the interest of justice. It is also important to submit those statements to court and the defence in the interests of justice, and that statements not included in the submission could in fact impede justice. The appeal was denied, O'Donoghue would serve his four-year sentence as originally ordered. 
In mid-January 2008, Wayne O'Donoghue left the Midlands prison after receiving the standard 25% remission on his four-year sentence. From outside the prison gates, he made a statement. Quote, I fully accept responsibility, not only for that loss, but also for the additional grief and distress which I have caused to Robert's family, owing to my actions following Robert's death. I realise and accept that nothing which I may do or say will ever ease their suffering. I feel and carry the burden of guilt for my actions each day. I also profoundly regret the hurt and distress which I have caused to the wider community. To all whom I have caused such grief and distress, I can only repeat my sorrow and ask for forgiveness. To my own family, relations and friends, I also wish to repeat my expression of sorrow for the pain and suffering which I have caused you. I deeply appreciate the support you have given me over the past three years and I will always be grateful for it. I fully accept personal responsibility for all of my actions in this matter. I have always stated that I would, as a consequence, accept the penalty imposed by the courts for my wrongdoing. I have served a penalty which has been imposed upon me by the courts to the best of my ability. I intend this to be my only statement in relation to this matter, and I would hope for your understanding in that regard. End quote. It's understood that Wayne O'Donoghue left the country shortly after, changed his name, and took up studying again in the UK. What happened on that January afternoon in 2005 was horrific, whether it was an accident or an intentional violent act with fatal consequences. The lives of two families were torn apart, and the community in East Cork has forever been changed. The safety of our children in rural communities, and that our neighbours had a watchful eye out too, and that threats to families were most certainly from the outside. But here, with the death of Robert Houlihan, it became clear that threats are all around us. They can't be hidden from, or driven from our communities. Someone who was a trusted family friend might become a threat in a moment. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. A big thank you this week to our newest supporters on Patreon, E.G. Lane, Rebecca Leeson, and Kevin Cuss. You guys are all so generous, and I appreciate it so, so much. My patrons keep this podcast running and help me to continue to create content for you. And it really makes a huge difference to me. So if you'd like to help out, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash pod. There are perks and bonus content up for grabs. Thank you also to some recent five-star Apple podcast reviews. Thank you to Kay Gostelli. Thanks for your comment about the production. That is really... That is really the thing that I'm most sensitive about. I really hope that I get it right, so thank you very much for your kind words about that. Thank you to Steve47712. Thanks very much, Steve. Thanks to Jay Fisher, 1127 and also to Amber82. Thank you so much. Honestly, guys, it means so much that you listen at all, so it's really wonderful to get such great feedback over on Apple Podcasts, and you're all so very kind to me, so thank you very much for that. Next time, we're staying in Ireland and returning to the theme of wrongful convictions while looking at one of the most baffling unsolved murders in recent history. 
This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Much of this episode was based on the book by Ralph Regal, called Afraid of the Dark, about this case. Ralph is a local Cork crime journalist and covered this story from the very beginning. This book is a really great insight into how press cover the courts in Ireland and how a story develops. Um, It's a very excellent read. I highly recommend it and I will link it in the show notes as well. So with that said, guys, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. It seemed a strange juxtaposition. It seemed a strange juxtaposition. <laughs> it seemed a strange juxtaposition. Cat.